And uh, let's read the passage and we'll jump into this. We're uh, about, well, we're more than halfway through a series called Exiles. We're talking about what it means to be a, a Christian in a world that used to be paradise and now is very broken. I was reading an article this morning on Puerto Rico. Uh, amazing pictures on the Washington Post. And it literally is a place that used to be paradise in a lot of ways and now is devastation five or six months later. Everything's different even though a lot of stuff's still the same. It's the same place, totally different scene. And those people are confronted every day If do I stay, do I leave? What does life in this kind of a place look like now? And Peter's been saying consistently each week through this book, uh, you're in a place that used to be paradise, but now even the simplest tasks are super complicated because of the devastation around us and in us. That's what it means to be an elect exile. Uh, this is the week where he talks about um, how the world will respond to the people of God in that scenario. So this is 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it with you. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh or the rest of your life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these things, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. He's talking about this is why the gospel was preached to those Christians who are now in the grave. Um, so that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together and then we'll pull this apart and look at it. Lord Jesus, uh, we've been through a lot the past few weeks. Midterms, the stress of hearing back from internships and still waiting to hear back from that kind of stuff. Spring break facing us. Our minds are in a million places. We pray that you would be kind enough tonight to um, organize us, to put things back where they need to go, to put new thoughts in our minds, new impulses in our hearts. And uh, we want to hear from you, but we don't even know how badly we need to hear from you. And so tonight we pray that you would nudge me aside. I have nothing helpful to share with my friends, but you do. So would you speak to your people? And would you speak to those who are not your people? And through even tonight, make them yours. We ask this in your name. Amen. So the past couple of weeks, Joel, um, thanks for your great message last week on Zechariah 2. A little bit of what Joel talked about last week, and then the previous weeks before that, we've been having a conversation about how God's intention of putting his people in the world or of changing his people but leaving them in an unchanged world, one of his purposes for doing that is for the things we've been talking about. Like Peter says in chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans or those who are not reconciled to God yet. Live such good lives among them that they see your good deeds and give glory to God. You remember we talked about like your life is the music of the gospel 
And, and Peter says it, it will draw others to want to know the lyrics of the gospel as they're attracted to the way you are, why you do what you do, the weightiness about you. Then we talked about Jeremiah, and uh, God said, hey, unpack your bags. You're here to stay. Don't have this renter mentality of coming to Athens to consume it and see what you can get out of it and then be on your way. But I brought you here to give. I brought you to this town and this campus to pour your life out for these people. Uh, And and they're going to see that. They're going to be blessed by it. So, you could be hearing these things the past couple of weeks and be like, this is awesome. So, like, the world's going to love everything about me. The world's going to celebrate all that's distinct about me, all that's uniquely Christian about me, and they're going to applaud it. And it's going to be like walking through campus on Palm Sunday, and everyone's just like, you're so amazing. Tell me more. Like, dude, do you have any seats left in your car to take me to RUF next week? I want to go. And obviously we don't think that because that doesn't happen. But Peter is beginning to balance the picture now, and he's saying to the cynics in the room, you better believe some of your friends are going to come to know the living God through your life, the way you live. Your holiness is going to be contagious, and it's going to convict some people. It's going to be what God uses to open their eyes. But he also says, your distinctness as a Christian, your newness, what uh, we read, what Alex read earlier, your newness, your new creation if you're in Christ, isn't going to go over very well. In, this, in these radiating circles of your friends and the people around you. It's just not going to be well-received a lot of the time, too. So you have kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes God's going to absolutely use that very, those very things to work in your friend groups. And sometimes you're going to be the, the, the source of mockery, ridicule, laughter, social pressure, isolation, not getting phone calls to get invited out anymore. He says all that is going to be happening uh, because of us and because of the way we are. So Peter wrote this passage to Christians in a situation very like our situation, in a town very like ours, to encourage them in the midst of the more negative side of how we interact with those who don't know God and the the opposition that comes, the isolation, the ridicule. This is a very personal passage to me for two reasons. I've lived both sides of this. One to my shame and one to God's glory. The, the part about um, they think it's strange that you don't do bup, 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 bup. Like, that's my story. I was that guy who did those things. I was the guy who didn't know God, who the, the thought of becoming more like him bored me to tears. The thought of just church bored me. Like, it was just, it was head knowledge. What really excited me was that litany of things Peter just talked about with the drinking games and the debauchery and the, the party scene and everything else. And because God is merciful and because he doesn't necessarily ask our permission to save us from ourselves, he saved me. He converted me. He changed my heart uh, right after I graduated. And uh, this, there's a story that comes immediately. Every time I read this passage, it's just like, boom, spring break 2004 is front and center again. Spring break 2003, me and all my buddies went to Key West, Florida, which is where you should be going to spring break because it's awesome. And there's a lot to do, and we loved it. And so we were like, hey, why reinvent the wheel? This was awesome. Let's just uh, push a repeat on everything we did. So when uh, December of that year comes around, we put another deposit down. Same friends, same hotels, same plans, same intentions. 
to live it up like we did uh, the year before. The only difference is what I mentioned. I made that deposit in December, and in January, uh, the Lord changed my heart, brought me to life, born again, um, knew my God for the first time ever, didn't feel scared of him, terrified of him, but knew that he loved me and knew that I loved him. And so um, I am left in this dilemma of between like middle January 04 and then spring break, a couple weeks later, of letting my friends know that I don't know exactly what, but something's going to be different because I couldn't get out of the trip and I deposit money was down and I kind of, I still wanted to go. They're my good friends. And so um, I started meeting up with my buddies one by one. And I remember uh, with one guy, we were up at the Starbucks by the arch uh, at night and we were having this conversation. I remember saying, dude, I don't exactly understand what's going on, but I don't want to do the things I used to want to do. Not because I'm like on some moral improvement plan and it's 2004, it's a new year, a new bin. Um, y'all are like, I was in diapers then or something. But uh, that's not why. But I said, <clears throat> I was like, I think I'm a Christian now and I don't fully know what, exactly what that means. But I don't want to go do all the stuff that we've spent the past couple of years doing. And I'm telling you this now because I don't want y'all to like on spring break wonder like, why is not Ben, like what's wrong with Ben? Is he angry with us? Is he depressed? Like, is he lame? What's going on? And so he was really gracious, and he said, dude, we totally understand. You do whatever you need to do. We're still going to have a great time, blah, blah, blah. And so I have those conversations. And I left that, and I was like, that went off better than I thought, but I don't think at all he has a clue what I'm talking about. I just felt like we weren't having a conversation. It was kind of like two people speaking over each other's heads. So fast forward a couple of weeks. We're down in Key West. And uh, it's probably a group of six or seven of us. And I'm at, a, I'm at the pool one day, and I'm reading this passage, just flipping through my Bible, and I'm, like, reading this passage. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know the Bible was, like, this real and, you know, relevant to... This is like a, a play out of frat life right here. And so I put it down. I don't think anything else of it. That evening, uh, if you've ever been to Key West, everyone on the island goes to Mallory Square at night to watch the sunset. It's like an island-wide celebration. And so uh, me and some of my buddies, you know, we're grabbing dinner there. Um, I was 22 this time around, and so we have a a couple of drinks with dinner, a cigar. And then about 10 o'clock, we go back to the hotel, me and one of my other friends, while the rest of the guys go to Duval Street. And about six hours later, at four in the morning, uh, it sounds like the SWAT team is trying to get into our room. Boom, 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 boom. Like repeatedly, I'm asleep. So I wake up full adrenaline rush, like, what's going on? Who is that? And I hear what's happening on the other side of the door. It's my buddies. It's the rest of them that have returned um, from being downtown every night. And, uh, and this is what they say. This is a, a rough um, and sanitized version of what I hear on the other side of the door. <laughs> Dude, why are you so lame now? What happened to the fun coppage? You think you're better than us now? Because you're a good little Christian, now you're too good to spend time with us. Expletive, expletive, blah, 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 and some other stuff. And that goes on. They settle down a little bit. We get up. We let them in. They eventually pass out. And uh, 14 years later, I'm I'm convinced nobody remembers a single thing from that night except for me and my other buddy who were in the room, who were lying awake, full adrenaline, at 4 a.m., reminded of this passage now that I'd read earlier in the day, which again says this in verse 3 and 4. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, which if you look at that word really means living like an animal, instinct-driven creatures. If you feel a sexual urge, you fulfill it. You feel urges for food or drink or anything else, you immediately act on it, just like a dog would. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised. They, my friends, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, which by implication Peter is saying that you used to join them in. And they malign you, or more literally, they heap abuse upon you. So that's why this passage is personal for me. I felt like I lived it twice in different ways, on different sides of the door. And listen, it's easy. That's, that's such a dramatic story. You feel like your chances of responding in the right way in that situation are a little bit higher because all of your red flags are going up. Okay? Uh, be calm. Like, don't mention it the next day unless they remember. Then we can have a conversation. Just kind of like let it go, whatever. But what's a lot harder is when it's a low-grade version of what I'm just talking about here. Not people banging down your door if you're a Christian and saying, why are you so lame now? What happened to the fun you? Why are you so judgmental or self-righteous? What's harder is in the low-grade moments where it's subtle. The feedback you get, the pressure that you get of uh, what happened to you? Like, why can't you just live a little bit? That is what's hard and those are the moments, I think, when we are most prone to join them uh, in this, what Peter calls a flood of debauchery, flood of dissipation. And not always because necessarily we want to do those things, but sometimes we just want the commons to stop. You know? Sometimes we want to be, like, we want to live for the, the, their verdict that, well, you're the cool Christian who actually still has fun, you know? You're not like the prudish ones that I know. We have different motivations for why we do it, but those are the moments where we are tempted, as Peter is alluding to us being tempted to, to jump back into what, for many of us in the room, is a past you remember. For some of you in the room, is not a past you remember. You were too young. Your four-year-old heart or six-year-old heart just wasn't sophisticated enough to express itself like this, but it would have. It totally would have if you'd been a little older when the Lord changed your heart. And so I, I think it's a lot harder actually for y'all than it was for me on that spring break trip. It's like a manual for that moment. You know what to do. But in the little moments where there's no one watching and there's no drama, it's a lot harder. And so um, that's what Peter is writing this letter to, is in those subtle day-to-day moments when you just you feel like you're the kid who showed up to class in your underwear and everyone knows something's off about you, but you don't yet realize that you're not dressed like everybody else. You just appear bizarre to your friends because of the decisions you're making, the things you're doing or not doing. You, like, not cool weird, weird weird. And Peter's writing this letter for those moments. Let me say something really quick before we get any deeper into this. If you're here tonight and uh, you're not a Christian... Um, welcome to the party, because I just told you of how I lived both sides of this story, and nobody in this room was born a Christian. Um, God makes you one. He changes your heart, changes your condition. 
So it's not like if you're hearing this, you're like, man, that sounds harsh. Dude, thanks for inviting me to RUF. What a lift me up before spring break. Um, It's not that anyone in the room is better than you. No Christian is better than any other person on the planet. But they are radically different. And the Bible doesn't shy away from holding that front and center. The Bible doesn't say, oh, we're all one big happy family. No. The Bible says there are people who are dead. There are people who are alive. There are people who are grafted into Jesus who is life. And there are people who are not yet or are not grafted into Jesus. And so it's like a dead branch lying in your yard. It has no source of life. So it's disconnected from the life source, disconnected from God. And so Peter is not trying to push an edge with you and like say, you know, no trespassing, you get out of here. It's an us and them conversation. Peter is talking to people who are still prone to fall back into that. Christians who are still prone to fall back into that. And so to the Christians in the room, a little caveat for you as well, that you need to know that these differences between you and your non-Christian friends, um, number one, we fall into this stuff too. Number two, these differences about you are not going to be celebrated. Sometimes you're going to have people pounding on your door uh, thinking you're self-righteous or judgmental. Here's a few examples. As soon as you start enjoying alcohol in the city of Athens as the gift that it is, and in moderation, in a way where you're its master, it's not your master, you will start hearing lip from your friends. Someone will say something, either behind your back or to you. Why are you so lame now? Like, do you not like fun anymore? You're grown up or you're getting close to graduation. You must be getting serious about whatever. You stop smoking weed and one of your friends or some of your friends will say to you, so you didn't seem to have a problem with this a month ago, but now you do because you're going to church now. And they'll just dismiss it as a fad. If one of your roommate's lives, like her life revolves around the next hookup, it's not just that she might see you and her as different. It's that she'll see you as judgmental, self-righteous, all of that stuff, because you are an inherent threat to the way she sees herself. You can't see yourself as a good person when your roommate is not giving themselves into the same desires and indulgences that you are, right? You know that? Like if you've ever been gossiping about someone and one of your friends won't go along with it, you know that feeling like, oh, crap. Can I take those words back? Other people's holiness, in a sense, is a check on your sin. And it makes, even though they probably aren't judging you, hopefully they're not arrogantly being self-righteous, you, you feel like they are, right? That's what Peter is talking about here. Tell your boyfriend, tell your girlfriend you think you need to stop sleeping together. They will think you are strange. And that strangeness will lead to distance between you. And you will feel very bizarre and very misunderstood because you're seen as bizarre and you are misunderstood. And in that moment, Peter says, these are the things you've got to keep your eyes glued on. Three things. We're not starting the sermon now. We've been talking a while, but these are three quick things that I just want to, for the sake of clarity, say as we... (laughs) You're like, As we look at this from 30,000 foot view, what are the three quick things you could say Peter says to look at? The three that I see in here is you get your power. You you live by a new power. You live by a new verdict. 
and you live by a new motivation, a new power, a new verdict, a new motivation. Here's what I mean by the Christian is different, not better, different than his or her friends who are not united to Jesus, not Christian at the moment. Um, you get your power from a different place, and you've got to remember that. I just finished uh, redoing our, a pantry in our house uh, for my wife, and for me, I like it too. And we built a countertop in it and some cabinets and shelves and all kinds of stuff. And we've moved back into it now. All of our food is there because it's almost done. And I put an, a, a wall outlet in there because it never had one before. And I was like, it'd be cool to have a microwave or something in here out of you. And so I put one in there. We have a dustbuster. And we have three kids under three. So we use it all the time. And so uh, Anna or me, I don't know who, had just like plugged in the dustbuster charger thing because it, it gets uncharged almost every day. And um, I go there to pick it up the other day and start doing stuff. And it goes, it's like, what's wrong with this? Turn it back on, like reconnect the battery. What the heck? I hate these dust busters. These things never work. It's it's like a lithium battery. They're supposed to last more than a year. So I go put it back up there and recharge it. Come back the next day, same exact thing. I'm like kicking this thing, smashing it, trying to fix it. What's wrong with this thing? I don't have time to deal with this now. We've got to go buy another dust buster. About two days later, brilliant me realizes I never wired that outlet into the electrical line in the garage, which I was waiting to do till after spring break. That outlet looked indistinguishable from every other outlet in the kitchen. It looked the exact same. The problem is, behind the wall, in a veiled way that you couldn't tell, it was not linked up to or tied into any power source outside of itself. Therefore, it is powerless, which means... When you plug anything into it to be charged up, all it does is that it, it's doing nothing for it. That thing is just draining. And, and, and we blamed the dustbuster, not the outlet, because we didn't know the source of the problem. And I, I'm looking at this passage and I'm thinking, why these things? Because this is a place where Peter doesn't talk about gossip. He doesn't talk about theft or covetousness. He talks about these like spicy sins, sensuality, um, Uh, sexual immorality, orgies, drinking parties. You're like, whoa, Peter, we're getting wild here. And uh, why does he talk about those things? And here's a reason why I think he draws out those things. Number one is it's culturally relevant to his place in that moment. That was their life, just like ours. A little bit more wrapped up in temple worship than ours, but, um, but that was the cultural thing. But the other thing is this. I think we... The same dynamic with that dustbuster and that outlet happens to us. We go around, all of us, trying to plug ourselves into things that have no, no power in and of themselves. And, and we're sitting there, not like kicking or shaking a dustbuster, wondering what's wrong with this thing, but it's we're kicking and shaking the things itself, like, what's wrong with my friends? This feels so draining. I thought this was actually going to have a spark of life here. What's so wrong with me? Why can't I kind of dial back my downtown stuff? Like, what's wrong with this relationship? We blame the thing, not realizing it's not necessarily the thing that's failing us. It's the power source that we're using that thing to get at. This has been an interesting conversation with some of you lately, just in hanging out. But we've kind of been doing a little sociology study in, like, why the downtown scene? And I totally, that's not everyone's story here. It's not a lot of your stories here, but it is for some. Why the downtown scene? Why the whole ritual of get dropped off at the arch at 11 and be out till 3 and then stumble home? <clears throat> it was never for me about, 
it was never about alcohol. It was never about drunkenness. It was about camaraderie. It was about that band of brothers thrill of we're on the same mission together. We got the same stories to joke about and laugh about tomorrow. And it's the adventure of it all. That was the thrill. That was the power source that we week after week plugged ourselves into. And every morning after, what is wrong with this thing? I thought that was going to like just be a little jolt of life, little jumper cables where a thrill came back and kind of my soul kind of picked back up again, a little recharge, and it never works. Same with all of the other things Peter mentions in that. You always feel emptier the day after, don't you? You always feel more powerless, more drained. Because those things do not have power in and of themselves. Sex is a gift Jesus made to give to his people to bless humanity, to be good for humanity. Alcohol is a gift Jesus made to give to people to bless us and gladden our hearts. All of these things, relationships that Peter talks about. Sensuality, which means the food that that we're after, the drinks that we're after, whatever. Jesus made it. But if you disconnect it from Jesus, it's like that outlet which looks tied into everything else and you can't tell it has no source. Jesus, when he makes somebody alive, Christianity in the Bible's estimation is not a census category. Well, you used to be non-religious and now you're a Christian. Cool, we won one. It's organic. You used to be dead, now you're alive. You used to be a dead twig in the yard, but now the master gardener has come and plugged you into the trunk. And this just three-foot diameter massive trunk is pumping life into you, and you're coming back alive. That's the power source for the Christian. It's Jesus. Not thinking about Jesus, not doing Bible studies about Jesus, but Jesus himself is the life source. It is, he is your vitality. He is what produces every bit of thrill, every bit of energy, every bit of animation in your life. And in these moments, we have to remember how draining and deadly it is to spend your life plugging yourself into things that are only draining you. They're not recharging you. Does that make sense? You disconnect alcohol from Jesus, it kills you. You disconnect sex from Jesus, it kills you. You disconnect relationships from Jesus, they kill you. And you're always left the morning after kicking something. What's wrong with this? And you try the next outlet. Peter says you've got to remember where the power source truly comes from. It is not in things Jesus made. It's in Jesus himself. That's the only way. He's the only way you can actually enjoy creation. And go back to these things now and say, I get to enjoy this without it dominating me and taking my life over. The other thing is this. Peter said, you've got to remember, there's a, there's a new power we live by. There's also a new verdict that we live by. The Christian lives under a new verdict. Here's what I mean by this. In the, Christianity is a little bit different from a lot of other things in this regard. For the Christian, God gives you the verdict at your first breath, not your last. Your first breath of life when he makes you alive, is when he tells you what he thinks about you. When he tells you what his relationship with you is like, when he tells you what he feels about you, it's on day one, not at your deathbed. And you'll hear sometimes people say, like, I want to live my life in a way where God says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And I get that. Like, I think that's, sign me up, I guess, for that. I want to hear that. But the reason I'm going to hear that is because I'm united to the Son of God. 
over whom God said at his baptism, well done, my good and faithful servant. In you, I am well pleased. And I hear that word now. And it's very different if you're living your life waiting for some distant verdict and wondering what's God going to think about me and say about me when I meet him face to face. That's a life of insecurity. It's a life of timidity. It's a life of powerlessness. It's a life of, well, if, if I don't know what his verdict is, I sure want your verdict to come back that you love me, that you like me, that you accept me. Tim Keller has a quote that I'm going to adapt a little bit. He says, um, most religions say the door, the door into life is at the end of a long road. Christianity says that the door is the beginning of a long road. And I'll say the verdict is the beginning of life with God, not the end of it. It's not something you're waiting to hear. God is not a tease. He doesn't play his cards close to his chest. He lets you see the hand he's playing with. If you're in Jesus, he loves you. You are his. He is not ashamed of you. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. He doesn't push you away. He will never turn you away. He doesn't roll his eyes when he hears your voice praying. He intercedes for you. He protects you. He guides every moment of your life, whether you are aware of it or not. That is what's true of you. That is the verdict he speaks over you. Clean, innocent, good in Jesus. Now. What difference does it make if you hear the verdict now versus if you think, I've got to live my life in such a way that God's going to say those good things to me? This is tragic and it's sad. Some of you have parents and the verdict is still out about what they think about you, right? And home is hell for you because you've never heard your dad tell you the verdict. And you work so hard to hear him say, I'm proud of you, I'm pleased with you, I love you, or your mom, or something tragic happened and they're out of the picture, they died, or whatever happened, and you've not heard that verdict, and you know what it's like to live when you don't know the verdict, you have to earn it. You're always working, always behind, always tired. Versus some of you have known the verdict of what mom and dad think about you since your first conscious moment. I love you. You are one of us. We will never leave you. We will always take care of you. You have a friend or a boss. The verdict is out on what they think about you. Work is terrible. Versus a boss who tells you, I am so thankful you're here. You're doing such a great job. That's a job that's easy to go to. Are you living for an unknown verdict that God has yet to speak over your life, Christian, in the room tonight? Or have you already heard the verdict? And it's the energy that propels you out into your life? Are you trying to prove yourself to him? Or has he already clarified what he thinks about you? Look, the more certain we are of God's verdict over you, the less you care about your friend's verdict over you. And the less you care about the culture's verdict over you. This is actually what I'm talking about. This is the key to perseverance. You want to be a Christian in 30 years from now? Be clear on what God thinks about you in Jesus right now. Because otherwise, you're, you're, pro, you're, you're bound, we are bound to start caring enormously what the world thinks about us and what your friends think about you. And you will dance through any hoop you have to dance through to get their approval. And the problem with the verdicts of the world, you know this, right? It is so fickle. These people, 
that Peter said you used to join in these things, used to love these people. Only after these Christians have kind of not towed the party line are they now pushed away and maligned. Their, their, their affirmation, their verdict, their acceptance was so conditional. As soon as you depart from what we're doing, it's over. Look, the last thing Peter says, he talks about we must, be, we, we must know there's a new power that animates our life. There's a new verdict that you live under that frees you from the tyranny of waiting on the world's verdict over you. And the last thing is that there's a new motivation in your fight for sin. Your fight against sin. Let me ask you something. Why do people wage war? Either roommates, why do roommates war against each other? Or like, why are Syria and uh, ISIS at war with each other right now? Or why are the Russians and the Americans kind of at cyber war with each other right now? Why do nations launch wars against other nations? They do it to protect their interests, right? Nation A is pursuing their interests. Nation B is pursuing their interest and protecting their interests, guarding what is precious to them. And so they arm themselves to, to, uh, to get an upper hand to protect their interests. Peter says in this passage, therefore, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, Arm yourselves with this thinking, the same thinking that Jesus had as he suffered on the cross, suffered in the flesh against sin. Arm yourself so that we can do what he said a couple weeks ago in the passage, because sin is waging war against you. He's saying, arm yourself to protect your interests, to protect what is good, to protect life, to protect what is precious to you. What is precious to you? that no one less than God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has touched you and made you alive. That's what you protect. That's what I fight for. Because that is priceless. That is precious. It's beautiful. It's good. It is worthy of World War III being fought to guard it and to protect it. And Peter says, arm yourself and be ready to fight a bad battle against sin. So bad that he says, we suffer, we bleed. That's the amount of pushback required. And the more you prize what is true of you in Jesus, which is again what Alex said earlier, you are new. The old has gone. The more you prize your newness, your resurrection life, your identity in Jesus, the more you will throw grenades at anything that threatens that. And that's what Peter is calling us to. So I want to end with this. What's the gospel in this passage? Because this sounds like a lot of do these things, remember these things. Well, the gospel is actually a few verses earlier. I didn't read it tonight, but it's maybe five sentences before what we did read. Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, just like Peter calls you to. The righteous one for the unrighteous one so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but are made alive in the Spirit. So what exactly should you leave this week thinking about when, when Peter says, arm yourself with the same thinking? Well, thinking about what? Number one, it means your mind is important to this battle. Who you think you are is very important. 
Number two, it means this. Who was Jesus fighting for on the cross? In verse 318, who was he fighting? What interests was he protecting that made him wage war against sin, against evil, against darkness? You just heard me read it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. And so in that moment, Jesus prizes his people enough to wage war against all that threatens them, which is condemnation, which is wrath, which is slavery to sin, which is addiction, which is all of that. No holes barred warfare on your behalf. That is what you and I are to fill our minds with when he says have the same thinking as Jesus. Think of the gospel. Let's pray.